0: Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Virginia
1: Allen. We are in the third week of Women's History Month. March is moving by very, very quickly. So I decided uh, that I should take some time to actually research why March is the month chosen as Women's History Month, and I wound up learning some pretty interesting facts about March and Women's History Month. So, here are four interesting things that maybe you knew, maybe you didn't know about March. On March 1st, 1972, the Senate passed Title IX, which we've talked about a lot on this podcast. It prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex, and it's meant to ensure equal opportunities for girls and women in things like education. Second fun fact, International Women's Day is March 8th. Probably a lot of you knew that, but obviously a great day to celebrate. And the very first March on Washington by women advocating for the right to vote took place on March 3rd, 1913. And then Women's History Month, interestingly enough, was actually used to just be one week. It was Women's History Week And that was signed into law by President Jimmy Carter. And then in 1987, Congress decided that they were going to make women's history week into a whole month. So lots of reasons to celebrate women in the month of March. uh, And kind of fun to know a little bit of the history of why March is so significant for all of us ladies.
0: That is so interesting. Thank you, Virginia, for researching that. (laughs) Yeah.
1: It's like, I should probably know why we're celebrating women this month. Uh, Well, we are obviously continuing to do that celebration today to talk about awesome ladies who are powerful and doing amazing things across America. So Lauren, what do we have queued up on today's show?
0: Up on today's Problematic Women, we talk with Beth Steltzer, a female powerlifter and the founder of Save Women's Sports. She explains President Joe Biden's latest executive order, which creates a clear path for biological men to compete in women's sports, and how a number of states across America are implementing legislation to protect female sports. Plus, Inez Stedman of the Independent Women's Forum joins us to talk about the Grammy Awards and why the blatant sexualization of women does not actually empower us ladies. And as always, we'll be crowning the Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on
1: Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are
0: often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it.
1: As we celebrate week three of Women's History Month, I am so pleased to be joined by Beth Stelzer, the founder of Save Women's Sports. Beth, thank you so much for being here.
2: It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me and bringing some attention to this very serious issue we're having.
1: It's such a serious subject and one that we try and and cover really closely here on Problematic Women. So I want to begin uh, by talking about your story. Your organization, Save Women's Sports, was founded to protect women's sports from biological men who identify as women. Two weeks ago here on the podcast, we had Alana Smith on the show to tell her story of being forced to compete against biological men in track and how that has affected her, how that's impacted her as an athlete. So, Beth, what is
2: your story? How did you get involved in this fight First of all, let me just give it up to those girls in Connecticut. They are so brave and courageous they for, are. for stepping up and taking this on their shoulders. And that's part of the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing, because it should, shouldn't be up to young women like that. We should all be standing up, um, men and women alike, to be protecting females. My story, long story short, is I'm a mom, wife, just kind of an average person who found sports a little later in life and fell in love with powerlifting and really carved out time out of family time and to train like two to three hours a day, five to seven days a week, just as much time in the kitchen to get ready for this women's state championships. And when I got there, instead of this awesome welcoming into the community, I was expecting this male through a disruptive protest during the entire event because he wasn't allowed to compete in the women's championships. And it just kind of threw me down this rabbit hole of realization of what's really happening to basically the erasure of women's rights.
1: Wow. So you're at this powerlifting competition. This is your introduction to the sport. Uh, and instead of it being you know, the celebration of, of women and how powerful we are, instead there was this major distraction of a biological man saying, I should be allowed to compete too.
2: Yeah, basically a temper tantrum and I'm not gonna stand for it. So I got home and I, I'm I'm like, this is not right. And I I couldn't sleep at night thinking that, you know, when I started researching online, all these people are getting harassed. So Beth, share a little bit more
1: about that, about that experience of showing up at this powerlifting competition, expecting to be celebrated as a woman for your strength. And instead, seeing, you know, this man protesting, essentially, that he couldn't participate in women's sports, and then how how that experience did lead you to found Safe Women's Sports. It,
2: it, to have the experience basically taken away from me was, was heartbreaking. It's a small community of people, the powerlifting community. And I expected this welcoming event. And instead, it was just chaos. But It helped me realize what's going on to women's rights, and I got home and started researching how athletes are basically being silenced by cancel culture in this fear environment that these activists are creating. And so I started SaveWomansSports.com as a way to compile information for people to see a, a source of the truth in this debate, and here we are making laws. (laughs)
1: <laughs> oh it's so powerful and as as we uh, as we chat today, I want to get into more of the weeds of what you all do as an organization i I know you all have been speaking out so boldly as we've seen President Biden issue um, now two executive orders on this subject just last week, the president signed It's sort of a mouthful, but it's the executive order on guaranteeing an educational environment. Free from discrimination on the basis of sex, including sexual orientation or gender identity. And the order states that all students should be guaranteed an educational environment free from discrimination on the basis of sex, including discrimination in the form of sexual harassment, which encompasses sexual violence and including discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. So we we can all agree, no one should be discriminated against. Yes, we can rally around that. But what exactly is this executive order saying, Beth? And what
2: does this mean for the future of women's sports? <laughs> for the future of women in general, basically. Um, what this order did was erase the sex-based protections that women have fought so hard to have. And in sports, that boils down to Title IX. And we have not even had that for 50 years. In places, we're still fighting to enforce that. And and now we've, with Biden's order, erased that. And we're saying that anyone is allowed to self-identify into the female category. and And we all know it is not fair for males to compete against females. We just seem to have turn this into some kind of partisan issue when it, it's, it's just basically common sense and it's sad to see that.
1: And what are those biological advantages that men do have over over women in athletics?
2: Sure, the, the differences stem from the Y chromosome that males have and these differences start in the womb and they are cemented in puberty. So there's a lot of talk around testosterone and puberty and how that makes such a big difference but we see even in the presidential physical fitness test that most of us in the United States do, if we go to public school, the differences start at age six between boys and girls. This is a reality. And it's, it goes from bone structure to bone mass, muscle mass, heart size, lung size. That all contributes to the oxygen carrying capabilities. So many differences and not just how the bone structure, like the Q angle of hips, Women's skulls are different. We are way more prone to concussions. There's so many differences besides the realities of pregnancy, uh, menstruation, menopause that we have to train around.
1: So we often kind of hear the argument that, um, well, you know, so many of these transgender athletes they're they're taking hormones, they're taking puberty blockers, and that that kind of levels the playing field.
2: Right. There's but what conflation. what's your response to that? So there's just this this conflation that somehow the, the differences between the sexes can be mitigated, and it simply it cannot be true. We see in studies, I think back to the Karolinska Institute in, in Sweden, we've seen they did a year-long study, and muscle mass did not change after hormone replacement, and... I think that's a seriously slippery slope that we don't want to put kids on that young. I think we can leave those kinds of decisions to 18 and older or adults. If we allow sports organizations to settle on this middle ground of allowing kids who transitioned, quote, pre-puberty transitioned boys to compete with girls, it's, it's a dangerous situation for everyone. Mm -hmm. Because
1: I guess you could see in turn that would mean there would maybe be a pressure then for younger people to transition even sooner (laughs) instead
2: of waiting, like you said, till they're 18 and can maybe more properly. uh, Yeah, that's the consensus of my team is it's a dangerous situation and and we do not want to put any pressure on our young people. We should be telling them the truth that the differences between the sexes should be celebrated no matter how you want to identify There are differences and it is not fair for males to compete against females. There's an overall 10% advantages. But in my sport, the male advantage is 64%. Wow, that's huge. You're talking uh, the women's bench press champion. If you take one of the world's women's bench press champions, same weight, same age male, they're going to outlift them by over 200 pounds, almost twice as much.
1: Wow. Yeah, that's easy to see no in strength sports. There. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But it goes
2: beyond the the fairness on the field. What about our bodily privacy in locker rooms? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's a major concern for so many women and, you know, for myself, as I think about going to the gym and who's in there.
2: And we're not trying to insinuate that all people who self-identify as being the opposite gender are somehow a threat But it opens up, it conditions girls to accept male bodies, and they will not know which one of those male bodies is the threat. And that's why we have sex-separated spaces to begin with.
1: Well, when it comes to what Americans overall uh, think of this subject, there's a new poll out, a study done by Politico and Morning Consultant. They polled nearly 2,000 registered American voters and found that 53 percent of those surveyed support banning transgender women from competing in women's sports. Only one third of those who were surveyed said that they uh, oppose banning biological men from
2: women's sports. And I think you would see that statistic be a lot higher if they didn't use that term ban. You know, this is not a ban. We are not trying to prevent any kids from competing. We're trying to maintain fair competition. And it goes back to telling the kids the truth. They can compete on the team of their biological sex, and they should understand why that's necessary. Well, I was really
1: interested within that poll to see that millennials, they were the highest as far as saying, um, you know, transgender athletes should not be allowed to compete in women's sports. 56% of millennials support banning biological men from competing in women's sports, which was 6% higher than baby boomers and 15% higher than Gen Z respondents. Were you surprised to see that millennials feel so strongly, more, more strongly than any other age demographic about keeping men out of women's sports?
2: I think they're the generation that understands. I think a lot of other generations don't understand this conflation of language that's happening. So those millennials are probably the ones that understood the question the clearest. Yeah. (laughs) No, that's
1: true. I think this is a subject that as a millennial myself, I certainly find myself talking about a lot with friends it's something that we're talking about okay you know if this doesn't stop how will we handle this when and, we have kids and we kids?
2: see social media possibly more so we see how big of an issue that it's getting to be certainly. Um, certainly and how serious it's affecting our youth on there
1: so women's uh women's groups a lot of women's groups sadly are are not really standing up for Ugh. women in the way we would like them To be the women's sports policy working group. They write on their homepage of their website that their mission is safeguarding girls and women's sports and including transgender athletes. But Beth, is it possible to safeguard girls and women's sports while including transgender athletes?
2: No. Period. (laughs) There's no other way. Um, Like we mentioned before, endorsing Pre puberty transing of kids is to me it 's dangerous, and even to the activists, what they are doing is not good enough because they didn 't fully allow males to identify as females and i don 't think these activists will stop until they have totally demolished what we know as women 's sports, for example, the Olympics. Everyone says, well, we've never seen a transgender person on the podium in the Olympics. Well, the truth is, until 2015, they had to have surgery. So, and they had to have their testosterone lowered for a certain amount of time, and that wasn't doable by 2016. So this is the first Olympics where we really could see males on the women's podiums. And it's just the beginning. Wow.
1: On the state level, we are seeing um, some, you know, some movement on this issue. Just last week, we saw Mississippi become the first state this year to sign Incession,
2: Yeah, Yeah, joining Idaho last year.
1: Yeah, yeah. So talk a little bit about states like Mississippi and, and Idaho. And, and what they're doing to really protect—they're setting a the precedent.
2: <laughs> they're they're doing what I would expect all of America to do is is putting their stake in the ground and and protecting women and and not um, complying with the lies. It, it, we need to stick with the truth here, um, and and that's what these states are doing. And I. I know that Governor Noem in South Dakota will do the right thing and not cave under the protesters that are gathering outside of the governor's mansion um, calling for threats. It is ridiculous. We need to do the right thing here and not be bullied into silence. And there are a handful of other states that are approaching their second Um, committee hearings. So once they get through the next chamber, they'll be on the governor's desk too, and we won't stop. We have several other states. We have 28 right now with over 50 pieces of legislation introduced this session alone.
1: Wow, so talk a little bit more about that. How uh, Save Women's Sports really plays a role on that state and local level to, to mobilize individuals to be a voice, to work with, uh, with, work with their state and local leaders to bring awareness and to bring movement to pieces of legislation.
2: We, we really use our platform to try and draw attention um, locally to these hearings and uh, just help people know <laughs> that their voice matters. And even as small as they feel, it makes a huge difference um, for them to come to these hearings and even sit in the crowd and say, yes, I agree, um, can make a huge impact. So when we can't find people to testify, I've been going to these states um, on behalf of these silenced women. And I cannot tell people enough how they cannot fold under the pressure from these bullies. Because that's basically what they are, is childhood bullies. And some names can't hurt you uh, stand in the truth and when you say bullies who are those individuals activists basically um people trying to compel our speech trying to tell us that there's no difference between men and and women and and that we should be calling males females and 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 then that's where all this conflation and confusion starts and that's how we've gotten to this point
1: so ultimately, where do you see this debate going? Obviously, like we've talked about, we're seeing a lot of movement on that state level. Um, but is you know is this an issue that you think we will see within the next couple of years potentially rise to the level of the of the Supreme Court?
2: Most definitely. Um, That's what the ACLU is threatening. They sued as soon as Idaho made their law. They were just on talk radio this morning on NPR saying how they're going to basically sue every state that comes along. But we're ready to fight back. It, It sometimes seems like a David versus Goliath type battle, you know, hundreds versus millions of dollars. But look at what we've done. And we all know how that story ended. So Beth, I do want to give you the opportunity just to share a little bit about
1: these women that you work with, that you're coming alongside and partnering with and championing and really being a voice for so that uh, so that they can continue to compete and have the opportunity to win. What What are you hearing from them? And if you could just maybe share one or two stories.
2: Well, the stories that mean most to me are the stories of the young girls, the mom that writes to me that says, hey, their daughter lost the championship because there were some boys playing on the other team and they don't even want to try again next year. Girls that don't even come to the starting line, don't even come to the game because they figure what's the point. Um, When we look at uh, the cancel culture, my friend Jennifer Wagner-Asali, who lost out on a world championship to a male, when she spoke out, was told by her sponsor who pays her team, you know, tens of thousands of dollars of gear that if you don't stop speaking out, we won't sponsor your team. So that meant just not her, but the other moms and athletes that, you know, they pay out of their pocket to come to these events. They would lose their only help they have. It's ridiculous, the fear and the lies that the gaslighting that we see. <laughs> yeah. So how can our listeners
1: follow and support your work? Because you are on the front lines of this debate uh, and this is, things are heating up. This is a really critical moment in history right now.
2: Yeah, we'd love for you to come to savewomansports.com. We have links to the state legislation to check if your state has something that you can help work on. We have a take action tab. You can email me at info at savewomensports.com. Join the team and help the fight. (laughs)
1: Beth, thank you. We so appreciate your time today. uh,
2: And thank you for being on the forefront of this critical issue. You know, Heritage Foundation gave me my first opportunity to speak up. And I will not forget that it takes uh, hands across the aisle moment to get this done. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you.
1: Now stay tuned because up next, Lauren is talking with Inez Stepman, a senior policy analyst at the Independent Women's Forum about the Grammys 2021. But before we get to their conversation, I have a question for you all are you following The Daily Signal on Instagram and Twitter? Every day, The Daily Signal releases new content on our social media platforms that is both really entertaining and meant to keep you informed on the news that really matters. Whether you love quick explainer videos, inspirational quotes, or reading up on the latest news stories, you can catch it all on The Daily Signal Instagram and Twitter. So go ahead and pull out your phone and search for The Daily Signal on your favorite social media platform so you never miss out on the content that you love.
0: So this past Sunday were the annual Grammy Awards. As soon as it was announced that Trevor Noah was going to be the host, I was like, yeah, not going to watch that. But if you did turn in, among the performances, you would have seen... A rather explicit performance from Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion uh, with their finale being WAP, which I can't even say what that stands for on this podcast. To discuss this performance and what this means or does not mean for feminism is Inez Stepman, who is a senior policy analyst at IWF, the Independent Women's Forum. She's also a Lincoln Fellow at the Claremont Institute, and you can read her over at the Federalist as a senior contributor. And one thing, Inez, as I was researching you, I had no idea that you interned here at Heritage.
3: Oh, yeah. I, uh, I started out in, in the education department. The fantastic Lindsay Burke over at the Heritage Foundation was my first boss. Um, so, yeah, have a, a long history of, of running around the, the Johnson building at the Heritage Foundation.
0: That's awesome. Well, we're so excited to have you on the show. And my first question is, did you watch the performance live or, or did you catch it later on Twitter? And what was your your reaction?
3: Well, I, I only caught it on Twitter. I, I I didn't watch the Grammys. Um, and I but I did go back uh, in preparation and watch the whole thing. So I'm not just talking about a particular clip, uh, but I did watch the entire performance. And and two things right away struck me. Um, the first thing is that it was just so laughable how they censored the word that you're not allowed to say that the P part of WAP, right? Um, They censored that word in the performance and yet the performance itself was straight out of a strip club. And I found that to be hilarious, that dichotomy between the puritanism of not being able to say the word that's in the title of the song and yet um, importing straight from a strip club, uh, the, the like um, aspect of performance, right? So uh, that, that just kind of, Tickled me initially, uh, that dichotomy. But the the broader point, um, I think was that my reaction to this was basically a yawn, right? Um mm-hmm. there is nothing transgressive about this anymore. Um it, we've all seen performances like this over and over and over again. Um it, it is it is almost impossible to avoid in our culture. Um, and, and yet it, it's lost a lot of its actual erotic appeal. To me, there was very little that was erotic or sensual or actually transgressive about this performance. Um, and and it, it made me think about the fact that maybe in order to have any kind of actual thrilling um, sensual performance or sensual uh, sort of art, there have to be some kind of taboos to transgress, whereas if, if everything has to be endorsed by everyone and celebrated by everyone and cheered by everyone, uh, there's actually very little space for that interplay between transgression and taboo. Um, And and that's what was missing in this performance. I just, I don't want to sound completely like Camille Paglia, but like, that's what I thought of when I saw this, like, I've seen this before, I'll see it again, um, and there's nothing particularly special about it. And that's what makes it kind of shocking in a way, the fact that you can have um, two attractive women gyrating uh, in in uh, metal bikinis, and it's just a, another yawn, another day.
0: Yeah, we, we've lost all sense of, of modesty in our society. And, and I want you to unpack a little bit of, you know, how does modesty and, and covering yourself up and only Uncovering in certain instances, like how does that actually make women sexier than they would be if they were, like, like you said, like gyrating in metal bikinis on stage?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I think there has to be something revealing. There's a reason we call it a strip tease, right? that implies that there's some kind of teasing involved. There's, there's nothing, uh, there's nothing left to tease in our culture. There's nothing left to reveal. There's no innocence to be lost. Um, all of those things I think are important components of anything that is actually sexy. Right. Um, and that doesn't mean, I mean, there are extremes on the other end too, right? There, there are cultures where, um, you know, the revealing of an ankle or an elbow is considered, uh, too erotic or too taboo um and and that really limits women in their ability to go about their daily lives right but i think we might have gone in the other extreme which is there's nothing um exciting anymore about revealing the female body um i mean this this performance is about as sexy as watching people sunbathe in a nudist colony right like it's <laughs> it's not remarkable and therefore it's not sexy well and, and this is being called women's
0: empowerment and and You know, she's she's owning her body. But how in a way is she really just objectifying herself?
3: Yeah, I mean, I I think um, the way that we talk about objectification as though consent is the most important piece of that um, shows a deeper misunderstanding. And this misunderstanding, I think, is applied across the board uh, to a bunch of dish- different issues surrounding um, sex and consent. The idea that the only negative, like the only way to judge any kind of sexual experience or display of sexuality negatively is if it wasn't consented to. Now, obviously, rape is horrendous and consent is very important in terms of sexual experiences, but it's also not the only axis by which we should be judging good from bad here. Um, And I think it shows the the paucity of that um, analysis of looking at everything only through the lens of consent when we talk about you know, is this degrading or not? Like, you should be able to answer that question without reverting immediately to whether or not these women consented to to perform this way. Obviously, they did. They make millions of dollars doing it. That doesn't answer the question of whether or not it's degrading. And it certainly doesn't answer the question of whether or not it elevates the female sex or elevates women Um and and um, you know advances the, their ability to be seen as more than um, just their sexuality. That those are questions that are separate from consent. But you see this again and again on the left. You see the left returning to this lens of consent as though they they have to explain everything about sex through that lens and that lens only. I think you see that most um, clearly when when we talk about Title IX and the due process. Uh, crisis on our, our college campuses, you see that people are unable <laughs> to talk about, quote unquote, bad sex in any other way other than consent. So they're trying to expand the concept of consent to cover what is essentially bad sex and regret. I think it's the same impulse here. That The only defense or, or um, critique that can be leveled at a performance like this in our society is, did they consent? Yes, then it's the end of the discussion. And I think that that's just such a flat way of discussing sexuality and discussing sexual experiences. Uh, it, it is an important element, obviously, as I said, but if your analysis of anything sexual begins and ends with consent, um, you're going to have difficulty, ex- you know, describing the range of human experiences that actually happen. You're going to be out of touch with reality. And it seems like society
0: has been training this way for such a long time. I mean, wh- where do we even and go
3: from here? Like, what what is what is going to be next? You know, that's a hard question to answer, but I think there is good evidence that in fact the sexual revolution hasn't provided even even if we lay aside the moral concerns, even if we lay aside any religious precepts and, and sort of prudish norms and, and um we, we talk about only about whether men and women are actually enjoying their sexuality. I, I I think the sexual revolution has failed on that count as well. I think we're seeing um, in study after study the fact that you know women are not enjoying sex in that way, and likewise, we're seeing a lot of disturbing results with excessive pornography use in men. So it's the, the availability of of this kind of imagery, the availability um, and uh, sort of promotion um, of of things that were once considered. Uh, taboo and should be relegated to you know behind closed doors or or maybe a seedy strip club somewhere. Um, the fact that they're being shoved in our faces twenty four seven is dulling, <laughs> dulling even the experience of those kinds of of performances. Right? It's it's <laughs> it's destroying the power that they had to begin with. Um, and and I think that that is that's part of the reason at least. And this is speculative. It's hard to prove, but I think that's one of the reasons we're seeing uh, this decline in actual sexual behavior among among young people right so we're seeing um, you know people 18 19 20 years old having less sex than they did in previous generations um, and and I think that's part of it I think it, it's it, there's the, this very strange dichotomy between our culture that is obsessed with sexual imagery and pushing sexual imagery and, and pushing conversations about sex into the mainstream and yet there's very there's less than ever um in terms of what is actually happening in terms of sexual activity and even the sexual activity that is being engaged in isn't bringing um as much pleasure to the people participating in it uh by their own self reports in these studies uh as previous generations so i think there you, you do see the link between having some kind of boundaries having some kind of um, limitations on on the erotic um is actually uh, when when you strip those those limitations away, ironically, I think we're finding that there's a lot less uh, pleasure. And that's that's even without getting into uh, the, the, the morality of it. Right. Um, theoretically, you could have a, a um, sexual mores in a society that were immoral, but but brought everybody pleasure. But the promise of the 70s was, yeah, let's drop all this stuffy stuff, you know, stuffy mores from from Christianity or from uh, traditional American culture. And let's pursue ecstasy and pleasure and what we're finding, I think. And increasingly, this is something the left and right agree on as a premise, although they go in very different directions as to how it should be fixed. I think what left and right are increasingly agreeing on is, where's the ecstasy? Like, everybody's miserable. That promise from the 1970s, I think, has met a hard end in the, the 2020s. Well,
0: Inez, thank you so much for joining the show. I think this has probably been the most scholarly discussion of metal bikinis. Well, and if our audience want to read more of your work, where
3: can they go and find that? You can find my work and the work of my fantastic colleagues at IWF.org. And then you can read me at The Federalist or find me on Twitter at Inez Belcher. Well, thank you, Inez. Thank you for having me.
4: If you're tired of high taxes, fewer health care choices, and bigger and bigger government, it's time to partner with the most impactful conservative organization in America. We're the Heritage Foundation, and we're committed to solving the issues America faces. Together, we'll fight back against the rising tide of homegrown socialism, and we'll fight for conservative solutions that are making families more free and more prosperous. But we can't do it without you. Please join us at Heritage.org.
0: It is now that time once again, my favorite time of the week, time to crown our problematic woman of the week. And the crown goes to Governor Kristi Noem of South Dakota. Governor Noem continues to be a bold voice of leadership in South Dakota and across America. Her state is moving forward with legislation to protect women and girls' sports from biological men. Governor Noem is a staunch advocate for life and just earlier this year introduced legislation to protect Down syndrome babies from abortion. She's a staunch defender of freedom and a big supporter of American free markets. And as we've talked about on this podcast, Virginia and I... Had the chance to meet Governor Nome at the Turning Point USA conference in 2019. We asked Governor Nome the question that we all asked our first time guests on the show Do you consider yourself a feminist? Why or why not? Here's what Governor Nome had to say.
4: You know, I would have never 10 years ago, but I'm getting there. Um, and the only reason, and it's but for different reasons than I think uh, this country's defined feminist and feminism, um, I think we got to have a woman's voice at the table all the time in any policy discussion. I don't think there's women's issues and men's issues, but there is definitely a woman's perspective on every issue. Um, and and we, are, we are different in the way we think, in the way we tackle problems and challenges, and having that voice at the table is incredibly important for getting better policy. I, I think I learned this over the years in Congress, um, that diversity of opinions around the table leads to good debate and we will end up with something that will last much longer be better for the families across this country so so yeah i would say a little bit more and i've noticed that women back away a little bit more i tell the story i don't know if we have time yeah of many times when uh i was in the house and eric Cantor lost his primary election he was the majority leader in the house at the time and uh he went home to virginia to have his primary election and lost that night and it kind of threw the house republicans in a turmoil I remember that night seeing it on the news um, late at night, and I started to get dozens of texts from members of the House, Republican people that were texting me saying, I'm running for majority leader. Um, Please, Christy, will you help me get the votes that I need? A lot of men were texting and saying, I'm going to run for majority leader. I'd be really good. Christy, will you help me get the votes I need to win when we have the election? On the floor the next day when we were voting, uh, I said to somebody, I said, here's the problem is that when Eric lost and we knew we needed to elect a new majority leader, every man in the house thought, I would be the best majority leader ever. (laughs) And I said, and every woman thought, I don't know if I could do that job. Hmm. And so that's that's the part that disturbed me, is that every woman I talked to said, oh, I don't know if I got the skills, I don't know if I can do that. And so women need to deal with that. Uh, There's something in us that causes us to take a step back and not know if we're up to the challenge, and boy we are. So I consider it kind of my personal mission to to women need to be asked. So I'm going to ask a lot of women to step up and to be there because we end up with better policies, our country will be better off, and we need them in leadership positions. Yeah.
1: Well, Governor, thank you for stepping up to the challenge in South Dakota and being such an amazing role model. We just really thank you for your time today. Oh, thank you for
4: the fun visit. It was great. Governor Nome,
0: congrats on being our Problematic Woman of the Week.
1: She is one great lady. Good to be able to celebrate her today.
0: Unlike TBH, I really hope one day sh- we'd be crowning President Gnome, our
1: problematic <laughs> <week>. <laughs> On
0: the down low. Yeah, you know, maybe.
1: <laughs> love it. Love it.
0: And with that, that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world, and we would greatly appreciate a five star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. Have a great week, and we'll be back with you all next Thursday.
3: Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former
4: co-host, Bree Payton.